Welcome to the Emirates Natural History Group podcast. Over the course of this series, we will be sharing recordings of our lectures from regional experts about nature, history, and adventure. We're a non-profit group led entirely by volunteers, and our goal is to support the discovery and understanding of the UAE's natural diversity and archaeological heritage. We act as a community resource that provides opportunities to learn and engage with nature, bringing like-minded people together. My name is Arabella Willing, and I'm the chair of the Abu Dhabi chapter. Along with the committee, we organise lectures, field trips, we publish a journal, and distribute awards and grants. In this episode, we will be hearing from Jane Glavin about how coastal systems protect our shorelines, from blue carbon to climate change adaptation. Welcome to the Emirates Natural History Group, Abu Dhabi. My name is Nisreen. I'm the deputy chair, filling in for uh, our chairperson, Arabella, tonight. So it's my pleasure today to introduce Jane Glavin. Uh, Jane has been with the Abu Dhabi Global Environment Data Initiative, hosted by the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi since 2003, uh, as a partnerships manager. I would describe Jane best by somebody who brings people together uh, and very successfully. So she's managed a number of key milestone projects um, on um, environment and ecology, bringing together global organizations that are working uh, with programs such as the United Nations Environment Program. Um, some of the really amazing projects that she's uh, helped put together uh, the Blue Carbon uh, Assessment Project in Abu Dhabi, but also in the UAE. Uh, the ecosystem service assessment, so the first study of its kind in Abu Dhabi, looking at the value of um, the environmental services uh, accorded by natural environments, uh, but also an extensive uh, project looking at biodiversity systematic planning uh, across the UAE and the region, and of course, uh, the most recent project on climate change assessment. So thank you, Jane, for joining us today, and we're really looking forward to your talk. So thank you very much. It's a privilege to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity. So today, we're going to begin our adventure together for the next hour, talking about coastal ecosystems. And why are we talking about the coast? The coast, as we all know in this room, is really integral towards human, um, towards our well-being, where we have our fisheries, where we utilize the environment, where we interact with the environment in multiple different ways. So the coastlines truly are critical to much of humankind, but at the same time, it's under huge amounts of stress, vulnerability, and impact. And so something that we're going to talk today about is ecosystem services. And so ecosystem services basically are what does nature, how does nature benefit humankind? And you're trying to put a valuation towards that. And so sometimes it's a little hard for me, a lover of the environment, I love going out there, to think about the environment as assets. But basically, ecosystem services is looking at all these beautiful ecosystems around us as assets and how they benefit humans. And so let's just take, for instance, this picture here. Can anyone give me some ideas about the services that could come from such a coastline such as this? Just call it out. Tourism, absolutely. Fishing, Fishing yeah. Bird watching. Bird watching, yeah, absolutely. Off Lulu, it's great. Tourism. 
recreation. Perfect. There's a wonderful little pod of dolphins just to the left over there <laughs> that uh, reside around there. They're really important. Uh, there's a port in behind. So really, the landscapes that we live in provide us services without us really thinking about it in multiple different ways. These are some of the other ecosystem services that are global. So these are generalized. What does the environment, how does it help humans especially along the coastline? The interior has multitude other services as well that are also really key and really important. But from a coastal systems, this is what we're, are some of the regular ones. There is re reduces erosion. It gives us drinking water, really key within our within the Arabian Gulf through desalination. So it cleans the water cycle. It allows the desalination to occur at uh, at an optimal rate. As it's a nursery habitat, those beautiful mangroves and seagrasses and salt marshes, recreational natural filters. It has carbon sinks. It has sustainable fisheries, so much of what we just discussed. And what, how is Abu Dhabi, how are the UAE, how is the region and the globe really using this kind of information? How are we starting to alter the way that we report, that we plan, that we move ahead with different policies? And we're starting to see a movement towards an ecosystem-based management approach. And so there's five basic principles, you can read them there. But what I'm going to say the most, and I think where there's the most challenges within the UAE, within Abu Dhabi, within the region, is really, and actually globally as well, is really looking at it in a holistic manner. And so what you'll see, you'll see science, really wonderful science around coral reefs and the impacts that you'll see. John Burt from New York University, amazing scientist talking about those coral reef impacts. You'll see EAD talking about seagrass impacts and what are the vulnerabilities. But what we're not looking at is the dynamics between all the systems. So if you impact a seagrass, how does that actually impact the little fish that feeds off that grass that goes over to the mangroves and starts living there? How does, if you affect that mangrove, how you're affecting the nurseries and therefore water quality. If you affect water quality, your desalination's not gonna work as well. Your other plants aren't going to work as well. How uh, your fisheries aren't going to be optimal. If you don't have optimal fisheries, you start impacting your food security. So everything is, especially in the marine environment, is so holistic, it's so integrated between itself. And that's something that those connections aren't understood, but that's probably the most important part of looking at an ecosystem-based approach. So if you affect one area, how does that affect the others? So another part of how we really look at, so this movement towards looking at services in a more holistic manner is around the sustainable development goals. So for instance, there's one goal on oceans, and it talks a lot about fisheries. It talks a lot about um, uh, artisanal fisheries as well as kind of larger impact fisheries. But that oceans, when you talk about oceans, it's actually connected to 11 of the 17 goals. It's connected to poverty. It's connected towards alleviation, sorry. It's connected to gender, um, empowering women to be out in the field. It's connected in multiple different ways to take action around climate change. And so really, when you're looking at, there's these, as we said, there's these reporting mechanisms out there that are starting to look at it, starting to look at it from a more integrated manner than singularly. 
So how do you look? How do you figure out what are ecosystem services? And that was the adventure that Ajiti began about since 2009, roughly, when we started looking at ecosystem services. So what do you do? You build layers and layers of information. Sometimes fun, you're out in the field. Sometimes you're behind a computer for days analyzing data. But it's a lot of work, and we're just at the beginning of it. But this is kind of how we went about it. So first, we looked at Habitat Map to understand the services that are provided and how uh, they protect our shorelines and they help benefit humans here in UAE. We have to understand the habitats themselves. And because habitats don't stop at a border, you have to look at it at a regional level and then drill down to the national level and then to the Abu Dhabi level. Because again, everything is connected. If you have something in a habitat happening up in Kuwait, there will be an invariable effect coming down to Abu Dhabi at some point. So we need to understand what is there. We need to understand the condition of it. Are the systems, which is obvious, but there's a lot of data collection around it, surprisingly, for something so obvious. The systems that are more robust, that are old growth, that are healthy, provide more services. It's a simple fact, but there's a lot of data collection that goes behind it. Calculating the health of the systems, calculating how vulnerable they are and how they've been impacted. So we have this habitat condition map. From there, you start looking, we understand the health, we understand the impact. Now, I don't know if you guys, the younger guys probably don't know Calvin and Hobbes. I hope. <laughs> Good, it continues. Uh, we're asking the question, what does that mean to us now? How do we evaluate the invaluable? We go out, I don't know who goes out kayaking here, going to the beach on the weekend, sitting down, relaxing, having a glass of wine, overlooking the mangroves, whatever it is, for not for you guys, the young ones. But <laughs> that is invaluable. And how do you calculate? The market value is very easy. Market value is a trade of timber coming from the coastline. It's a trade of fisheries. It's the trade of things that have a to and from within the economic scale. But what you don't, what's more difficult, is valuing what do you, how do you value your beach time? How do you value that dugong that has the right to live there? And that is intrinsic value. How do you value um, cultural value. There's a lot of stories about, here in the UAE, really interesting stories where they talked and they taught their children about gins and the mangroves and that you cannot disrupt a uh, mangrove because it'll release the negative gin, uh, which is a spirit. And so it's part of the culture. So how do you evaluate those? So we began our, our journey. <laughs> we started looking. We brought amazing scientists from around the UAE together with policymakers that are in the field actually making these policies. We calculated, again, the habitat for Abu Dhabi, how well, how is um, the, the extent, the health of it. From there, we looked at what are the key services being provided now? How do those, in right now, in Abu Dhabi, how do coastlines help human beings? From there, and that's when you start getting much more detailed. You saw that earlier version, very broad. It talks around nurseries and all these other services. But for Abu Dhabi, it turns a little bit different. For us, it's around water quality, waste dilution, meaning that if you emit something into the ocean, it pulls it away. Um, <coughs> excuse me, 
uh, fisheries, and a little bit on the nursery for crustaceans. But what happens in the future? So you have these services being provided that we're all benefiting from. If you have a development plan in the future, if you have uh, future desalination plants coming in, if you have some kind of dredging activity as part of these plans for 2030, 2050, how will these services be impacted? And you start calculating that by calculating how much do people actually use these services, how do they benefit from them, and what is the value of that loss? And so for us, you can see channel maintenance suddenly, that is the, under the most risk under uh, future plans. Store, shoreline stabilization, water quality, recreation are all very key and important. But what's the good news is that you make slight alterations to environment plans, to Abu Dhabi Plan 2030, and you start seeing some of these vulnerabilities for the future start reducing. And so it is not by any means all dumb, dim and glim. <laughs> and so now when we started, we worked with hotels and beachgoers, and that was the best part of my job when I get to go out. You get to survey all the hotels. Arabella was one of our main surveys as well that we did. And we asked the question to them, what is your, your current hotel rate? What is your future, sorry, what is your current hotel rate? How much do you um, rely on a clean, healthy beach? If you had a time period where you couldn't access the beach for six months, well, how would that impact your future? Um, uh, how many people are staying in the hotel and your future rates to be able to accommodate a shift in you have to, from if you can't have people on the beach, you're going to have to talk about it in a different way about your hotel. You're not the beautiful Park Hyatt with look at that beach. You're the Park Hyatt now that potentially has to look at conferences and more indoor. You have to maybe put an indoor pool. So what would be the cost to you potentially to have to accommodate a change where you can't access that water? Then we went to the beach many days. We literally ran after one per person in Murfa because he was the only one on that beach that day, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and we went to them and we asked the question, do you, how do you access the beach now? What, did you, how, what does it mean to you? If you could not access that beach for six months, what would be your potential compensation? If you could not access that beach again forever, how, what would be that compensation? For me, I'm at the beach all the time. Without living in Abu Dhabi and not having an access to the beach, I probably wouldn't live here anymore. So for me, it's invaluable. It's a very high. For somebody who might just go once a year, not so valuable. And so you put it through this analysis. And what you come, it's pure math. It's not modeling behind it. You take all these answers together. And for the beachfront in Abu Dhabi, for hotels and beach goers, the amount of compensation, this is not, uh, this is what they're saying. In their minds, it's, this is worth, this is what's at risk, is $824 million per annum, which is a huge number. So really, what is that saying? Is even the economic diversification that relies on our coastlines is heavily, heavily needed to have clean beachfront, to clean, have clean access to the water, for people to come here, to play here, to be safe here. You need these pristine environments. And to have pristine environments, you need the mangroves, you need the salt marshes, you need the seagrasses, 
working on that water quality, providing amenity services. It becomes a key part of an economic diversification plan. <clears throat> and now, blue carbon. So we, we talked about habitats and the need for them. We talked about how they all come together. You need to look at it holistically. We talked about the services they potentially provide. Another service that is really exciting is blue carbon. And this is a new science that's out there. It's very, very new. There's something called fish carbon as well, which I can share with you after the <laughs> after the after this talk if you'd like. Um, it looks at fish poo and the carbon stored in fish poo. It's not very exciting or sexy, but it's pretty cool. Uh, blue carbon is very exciting and very new because what it is, it's that with terrestrial systems with big trees, you have star carbon storage. In the, in the roots and in the, and sorry, in the tops and in the roots. But there's a cap to how much carbon can store. So you build, you, you forest and you have these beautiful old growth forests, but there is a cap in how much carbon it can store. And you need to take out carbon from the atmosphere to be able to mitigate climate change. It's the main part of carbon dioxide out of the, out of the atmosphere because of climate change mitigation. And so what does blue carbon look like? Blue carbon are seagrasses, salt marshes, as well as mangroves. Uh, we looked at cyanobacterial mats. They're very black, gooey. You put your foot in there, you can't wash off your sneakers in days. Very, very heavy, and they very rich dynamic systems, but there's very small amount of them here. And those are blue carbon systems. And why are they different? They store carbon over millennia. They can stand over thousands and thousands of years. There is no stop to them. Conversely, if you destroy a mangrove, if you pull up the root system, if you dredge right through a seagrass bed, you're releasing thousands of years of carbon as well. So it's really important to understand, and to understand because of climate change mitigation, stopping climate change, but also as a way to look at adaptation and co-benefits of, of having these beautiful old growth old growth habitats so that you have a mitigation for, for the future, you're stopping the carbon dioxide, but you're also creating landscapes that are doing all these other systems as well, services as well. And so what does blue carbon look like in the field? Because this is the joy of a job, I think. So this is what it looks like in Abu Dhabi. You're looking at carbon storage in the, in, the, in, the, in the foliage, in the top part. The bigger the trunk, the bigger amount of carbon stored in it. Then you're looking at the root system. That root system needs to be semi-inundated. It needs to have a tide coming in and out. And from there, all the carbon then is stored also in the root system. So it's above and below ground carbon storage. And so what did we find? We found for, for Abu Dhabi, we found that seagrasses, because of their sheer extent, hold the most amount of carbon storage. So you can see over here, this is seagrasses. Then, so they're important because there's so much of it from a carbon perspective. Then from there, you look at mangroves. There's a, old, there's a, a huge difference between an old growth and a planted mangrove. A planted mangrove takes 40 years for carbon to be stored to an equivalent amount as an old growth. So those new growths, they're important, but at the same time, 
really where we need to protect is the old growth mangroves. Those are the ones that provide the most services as well as most carbon. And it takes a long time for a, for a little tree to grow up over here because of the high salinity, high temperatures. For us, from a carbon perspective, salt marsh is not as, as they're much smaller. And then that beautiful little uh, cyanobacterial mat, that black mat, heavy mat, that has four times more than any other system that we have, which is incredible. So very, very powerful, impactful from a carbon storage perspective. And then from there, we uh, looked at SAPCA as well. SAPCA are very key. They're an integral. Everyone's nodding. You all know about SAPCA. And really what's important about them uh, from a carbon perspective, along with other services they provide, is that because of the rise in the fall in the Arabian Gulf, it receded and got covered. It, got co it covered thousands of years ago other coastal habitats. So they covered the mangroves, it covered the salt marshes. When it got covered, it became carbon dioxide, and it, sto it stored amazing amounts of carbon. You can see, not just from the extent, but for, per the unit, very, very high amounts of carbon. So it doesn't have that above ground carbon sequestration and the below ground start carbon storage to be called a blue carbon ecosystem as the definition of blue carbon but it's an, we call it an associated blue carbon habitat. And we're going through motions with the Blue Carbon International Scientific Working Group to, so that it recognizes SAPCA and cyanobacterial mats as well. So that's a contribution of Abu Dhabi science to the international community. <laughs> I can show you the video afterwards if you like as well, the full video, but just to say it's a lot of fun. For the students, I hope to see you can come join me anytime in the field. And it's a lot of fun. You're out there in the mud up to your knees, but really critical and important work. And how has this work been incorporated as part of UAE policy and planning? It's part of now we're looking at blue carbon and ecosystem services uh, from a climate change perspective as part of the climate adaptation plan and the climate strategy for UAE as well as for Abu Dhabi as part of our national biodiversity strategy and action plan and BSAPs as part of our processes towards GHG emissions. Abu Dhabi is actually the first uh, through EAD is the first ones in the world to actually calculate uh, this UNFCCC process called the wetland supplement and Abu Dhabi is the first to test it. So we've been using these carbon findings in multiple different ways of reporting and planning. Um, there's others on the list, but it really is, it's, it's fun science, but it's science that's impactful. Now, if we look at, then we extended the science up to the Northern Emirates. Really interesting to me was that as you move up the Northern Emirates, it's the same mangroves, the same, we have one type of mangroves in the UAE, it's Avicinia marina. We have one type. As you move up, they're all roughly around 100 years old. So same type. But as you go into Umal Quain, they look like cornfields. They're very tall, thin, very, very thin, and you can just brush them aside as you move over. In Ras al there's one site that has barnacles on the roots. No other sites in UAE have this, but that one site in Ras al There is one site, as you go north of Ras al that has 
uh, the smallest little saplings everywhere you look. No other site had as many sheer amount of saplings as you saw there. And then there is amazing Coracalba, this beautiful system. It's the oldest mangroves in the Arabian Peninsula, over 400 years old. They're trees you could hug. And it's amazing. There's these huge crabs and turtles, and it's an amazing environment. And that itself is a unique landscape of UAE. And so each site, they're very special, very unique. They all have carbon storage from different things, but uh, different, each site has different carbon storage. But really to say each site is unique from a biodiversity perspective, from an importance perspective. Ooh, that's neat. <laughs> and interesting as well, as you move up the coastline between Abu Dhabi all the way up to Umalkwe and up to Ras al Khaimah, the amount of carbon increases as you go up the coast. We don't know why. We haven't, we're not sure. It might be inundation. It might be some freshwater input from the mountains. Because if you have freshwater input from, uh, from mountains or from the golf courses, <laughs> you have uh, more carbon storage because the trees are bigger and stronger. But we're not sure why. So that's something we're going to start looking at. Why is there, once we have it up at some point, you'll be able to see a huge amount of difference between as you move from Abu Dhabi onwards. Something else you'll see is that because Abu Dhabi has such a legacy of old growth, uh, sorry, of old restoration efforts um, since Sheikh Zayed's time, there isn't as much old growth. And so our carbon storage from an Abu Dhabi perspective, very small. As you move up the coastline, uh, because they have more old growth, uh, there's substantially more past you move Abu Dhabi up to, I have a graph, you'll see it in a sec, but as you move up all the way to Ras al Khaimah, more carbon than in Abu Dhabi Emirates, which is 80% of the shoreline of the UAE. And then they had that beautiful Korakalba, three times more than all of us. So really, to say it's a dynamic, it's a very critical site. Ta-da! Yay! <laughs> so you can see from here, uh, as you move up that coastline, you can see the difference, and that's because restore, um, conserving old growth is really important. Either it's good to restore, but you really need to conserve. And this is that other graph. So this is Abu Dhabi all the way from, from Silla all the way over. Uh, you can see it's the smallest. That past Gantut all the way up the UAE coastline is second, so it's you can see conservation really makes an impact. And Oman, that beautiful Oman site, is three times more than Abu Dhabi. And it's tiny, but it's impactful. Now to say there's different ways where you can start looking at. So now we're looking at technologies. How can technologies help us understand the protection of coastal systems and looking in new, innovative ways? So this is a project where we looked at using drones to understand the above-ground carbon storage. If you understand above-ground carbon storage, you can calculate volume. If you can calculate volume, you understand how much uh, storage there is. <coughs> so we used um, drones to see. Sometimes these sites are very hard to get to. It costs a lot of money. So this helps you prioritize which sites you want to go see. It also allows you, using drones, obviously it allows you this top-down view, but sometimes it's more impactful to see something from above, and it's a way that a scientist usually doesn't see their landscape. 
And so, for instance, with Dubai municipality, they didn't realize an extent of a die-off area until they saw it from above. So look at using imagery in different ways to understand our coastline, to understand the protection levels that they're providing. If they're under stress, can be, you, you can use multiple different technologies. Then you can start looking because it's very different to tell a decision maker it is die-off when you show them a picture, but to have them use virtual reality glasses or 360 imagery and show death and dying around you and 360 view makes you feel like you're part and you see it and it's more impactful to you. So being able to communicate about these environments in different ways and new ways also becomes important. Then also, you see, very pretty picture. It's flat, it's a mangrove. Interesting, it has roots. You can see some seagrass in the, in the background. Pretty, definitely. But when you start looking at it from a 360 version, again, where you're looking, you're part of it. You have those VR, imagine with the VR goggles on you, or you're just looking on your screen and you're looking around. It's a very different story. It starts feeling much more alive. It starts feeling like you're part of it. Um, and it's a good way to communicate about the importance of coastal systems. And then another way is looking at um, virtual tours. So again, it's a different way to communicate about the, the importance of, uh, of the system. So you're, you're using 360 imagery, you're work, working through a system, and you're connecting to information, to videos, to publications, and it's a good way to be able to, to really show, again, a protection of a landscape. So you would kind of move around, look left for it, look right, and then move through the system, which will take a long time, so we won't do that. <laughs> Another thing that we've been doing, so again, using technologies to understand, because understanding how much an ecosystem can protect a shoreline depends on the health of the, of the system itself. So we've been looking at, uh, it's called NDVI, and basically, it's looking at the reflection of the plants. It looks that all plants look green to us. The way that the images are analyzed, and I'm not the best at this, but from my understanding, the way the images are analyzed, uh, there's a different spectral uh, reflection from a healthy system to an unhealthy system, even if it looks green. You can see the stress before you visually see the, the plant dying. And so it's a good way to understand if a system is healthy or not. So the yellow parts, are, I'm sorry, the green parts, the dark green, are very healthy section of the mangroves. The yellow are less so. So you, understand, you start seeing if there's some impact, some vulnerability to your shoreline uh, so that you need to look at. Another thing that Nazreen mentioned was our climate change program. And so we looked at 12 different projects under five different thematic areas all looking at vulnerability, adaptation, and looking at how, how do we react as the UAE and as a region to the potential future impacts. One of the projects was looking at uh, downscaled climate change modeling for the oceans. So it was looking at a very, very high resolution under a future where, uh, where there's no policies in place. Uh, or current to now, and that's an RCP 8.5, they call it, under the UNFCCC. 
And then we looked at a 4.5, which is a mid-range. We're doing some plans, we're doing some policies that are supporting climate change, but it's not as best as it can be. It's a middle ground. <clears throat> From there, we looked at climate change impacts to our ocean. Again, trying to understand the vulnerability. Now we're understanding how much these services are being provided, how they're protecting our shorelines, but we need to look at the future. How will they be impacted under climate change? So for instance, under oceans modeling by 2100, you'll see that there's different seasonal shifts. There you're going to see different um, salinity levels. You're seeing different temperature levels and a difference in the frequency and the timing of them from a biodiversity perspective, from a industry perspective, from multiple different reasons. It's important to understand uh, basic parameters and what they could look like in the future. From there, we looked at the Coastal Vulnerability Index. So we looked under storm surge, sea level rise, what, how vulnerable is our shoreline? We have invaluable infrastructure. We have palaces. We have T-cell plants. We have aluminum. We have um, fisheries. We have multiple different things that are taking place on our coastlines. And we want to understand how vulnerable are they to storm surge and sea level rise. So you can see from here, the areas uh, that are red are most vulnerable. The little dots, those are population levels. And you can see the habitats behind. And so that's saying we're right now on Sadiat. You can see quite vulnerable to climate change in the future, to storm surge and sea level rise. Then we start looking at how do habitats protect that shoreline. And so mangroves, again, they protect our shoreline by breaking storm surge uh, from sea level rise. Seagrasses are all important when there's waves coming, when there's, uh, when there's uh, <clears throat> a sudden shift in storm surge. And so, <coughs> sorry, I'm losing my voice. These systems, mangroves especially, but seagrasses, corals, all do a wonderful job at protecting that shoreline. So we calculated where those, where current habitats are and how much protection to the shoreline do they give and therefore the reduction in vulnerability. And so red is highest, so really around, and then orange. So the habitats currently in place are providing a pretty good amount of, of uh, uh, protection for Sadiat Island and the buildings that are here. And then you start looking, if you are to do a restoration scheme or to do a protection where level, where should you do that? What's the best place to do that? And so those areas in are black. So you can see Sadiat already has some protection. That's, it's a conservation area currently. But, so it's a good placement for it. But there are other areas where you would want to restore on the north end of Lulu Island, across some of the islands. So it helps you inform decision makers. It helps you inform those creating policies. Where do you protect? Where do you have the most amount of vulnerable infrastructure? And how do you best look at that under climate change? Then you start looking, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, again, you're, you're understanding where you need to best protect, but how is it going to look in the future? Will mangroves be able to survive here? Will seagrasses be able to survive under increases in, sea level, sorry, in salinity and temperature? Will they thrive as much as they are now? 
And from there, you can see some modeling. It's hard to see on Arabian Peninsula scale, but you can zoom in. And there really is a change in the habitat suitability for mangroves, which is on the left, and then <coughs> a change in fisheries on the right, saying that this habitat from, from high temp temperature, high salinity, will really uh, affect the future of these of the biodiversity being able to survive under under future conditions, and so then you start looking at other services as well. So you look at if it was something important is food security. There's quite a bit of discussions going on now at the UAE level, creating a food strategy, a food security strategy. So. Under these current, current sorry, future conditions for climate change, how will they affect fisheries, a key component? And you can see from the left, we start looking at the vulnerability of the country, and then, sorry, the impact on the left. And so it looks at how, how will UAE be impacted by a reduction in fisheries, what that fisheries reduction could look like, where is the fish, are the fishes potentially going to move, and then how vulnerable is the UAE to that. And vulnerability here is defined by the ability for the country to look at alternative sources for food, as well as look at alternative um, look at other food sources themselves, or look for fish from somewhere else. So we're medium there. And so all these layers of data, all this information, you build it together. And from there, you hopefully, and it's not at the, it's still at the beginning stages, even with all this data, how are they all in, interconnected? So we have a good understanding of blue carbon. We have a good understanding about some of the health of the corals, how we have a good understanding about potential future impacts. But how does that all tie together? And that's the question we still need to answer. And I know a lot of people in the UAE are looking at that and trying to answer that. And it's really a future research area that we really need to look at. But really, those coastlines truly are invaluable and truly are special and something that we should all enjoy and thrive and work together towards protecting. Everything that I showed, we are in the Abu Dhabi Global Environment Data Initiative is a partnership initiative between EAD and UNEP. We're under Agenda 21. Uh, so basically that means open access to data information. So everything we have, everything you've seen, as well as our other information, can be found under agd.org. It's all free. There's several toolkits. We provide all our data for open access to data, open access to our visualizations, our animations, our videos, everything, technical reports. So please feel free to contact me, which I didn't put my email, but come talk to me if you do. <laughs> and then please visit the, at the website as well. Thank you. Jane, thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. We've all learned so much and we really appreciate your time. A great big thank you to all of you for listening as well. If you're interested in finding out more about our organisation, including how to become a member, please check out our website, enhg.org forward slash Abu Dhabi. If you'd like to send us an email, our address is abudhabi at enhg.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at ENHGAD 
or on Instagram at enhg underscore Abu Dhabi. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank our wonderful patron, His Excellency Sheikh Nahyan bin Mubarak Al Nahyan, and for the generous support of our volunteer committee members. A special mention today to Nasreen. Thanks as well to our individual, family and corporate ENHG members for their support, in particular the Park Hyatt on Sadiat Island who generously hosted us for this event. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.